Back here in the fast lane across the Virginia Talk Radio Network. Well, they keep defying the odds. Trey's Miami Heat, and he's not here to brag on them, which is probably a good thing, so that we don't take forever and ever to actually get to that. They resume their action game three tomorrow night. Two and a half point, two, two and a half point underdog Miami against the Denver Nuggets. Um, it kind of feels like these games, really both of them, it's, it's weird. First game felt like it should have been way over the point total because Denver was running away with it. And Miami adjusted at halftime and it came to a screeching defensive haul and went under. And then the game on uh, on Sunday night felt like it probably should have been uh, you know, more likely an over given the offensive explosion early. And yet, or excuse me, it felt felt like it should have been on Monday, on Sunday night, excuse me, given what we saw offensively, uh, felt like it could have maybe been under, and yet it tipped over toward the very end of that game. And just a very weird feel to it. But Miami's adjustments have been one of the paramount things, because I keep looking at them and just go, the, the players, the cumulative talent on the roster, and we're going to presume Tyler Hero will not play Wednesday night, although he's, don't get me started on NBA injury reports with how that's gone. <laughs> but, um... You were going to presume he's not going to play? I mean, you got the MVP, or should have been MVP, two-time MVP, should have been three-time MVP with Denver. Jamal Murray, as talented as they are, uh, overall roster seems to be better, but yet, I mean, there's no denying Eric Spolstra is right now, I would say, the greatest coach in the NBA among active coaches in terms of maximizing the amount of talent that he's been given because when you, you know, if you were to pick a street ball lineup, there's not a lot there on Miami that you would find, but the parts certainly match up very well. Just like the parts add up well when you get the inside analysis from Drew Densick. He's at whale underscore capper on Twitter, and he's part of NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast. Drew, a pleasure to have you stepping back into the fast lane. Are you as confused as we are about the direction of the NBA Finals, or are you still as convicted of Denver as you seem to have been before this this series started off? Uh, well, first of all, thanks again for having me, and that was a killer segue. Uh, I agreed with pretty much everything you said. Um, this is a really tough series to get a good read on. And honestly, it's been a tough playoffs to get a good read on exactly who and what the Miami Heat are. We're at this weird place where people who are kind of convicted that the Heat are, uh, you know, live to win this series, like they have a lot of evidence in their pockets that there is some mysticism going on with the way Spolster has these guys playing that is elevating the, you know, the overall rating you ought to be applying to this group of talent that uh, you know far exceeds what you would have on paper forget about even just using this season's regular season data like there's really no way to quantify uh, or close the gap when you have you know this this uh, inexperienced and, and less talented unit uh, winning games in you know fourth quarter comeback fashion uh, against some of the best teams we've seen in the NBA in years and some of the best offenses in particular that we've seen the NBA years now and Back-to-back series. I mean, game one, to me, watching it felt like an absolute blowout. I mean, he were in a terrible situational spot. It seemed like they were drawing dead heading into that game, and yet they come out with an 11-point deficit that threatened covering the you know the closing spread, and it was like, man, that, that should have been a 20-point loss. How in the world did they get that even close? And uh, and then they back it up with uh, you know a comeback from eight points down and heading into the fourth quarter. Uh, to the tune of halfway through the fourth quarter, you thought, well, this is now a blowout. Yeet, how is, how is this happening? Uh, and, you know, as much as I would like to think I kind of have a good read on basketball and matchups, it's defying, you know, sort of the conventional wisdom about, you know, how you handicap these two teams. And 
you know, the fact that the Heat now have home court advantage on top of this sort of mysticism surrounding the way Spolster's coaching in these this postseason, it's uh, you got to think they at least have a chance here. Um, you know, down down 0-2, I think we would kind of be lamenting that we weren't having a more compelling finals. And then at 1-1, I'm just scratching my head like, how are we even, you know, at all tied up here? Uh, and I guess, you know, for selfish reasons, I'll hope that the season, you know, series goes a little longer um, because I, you know, I relish the opportunity to bet unders in late series situational spots. But, uh, you know, for just the X's and O's matchups, I'm not sure how the Heat are going to get it done. I'm certainly not seeing enough uh, in terms of sort of, uh, you know, repeatable offensive scheme the, other than, you know, what they have unlocked so far with Denver's sort of lackadaisical coverage around the uh, perimeter. So, you know, it's it's uh, there are some more chess chess moves to be made, largely on the part of the Nuggets, in my opinion. And uh, you know, for their sake, uh, they should hope that they come up with the answers to solve the Heat sooner in the series than later. Because two wins back to back here for the Heat would really put the Nuggets on the ropes. And um, you know, I think uh, you know the Nuggets, you know, the, the Heat at least they're they're a heck of a front running team. Like those guys, they believe in they believe in the leaders on the floor. They believe in the you know the front office and the coaching staff and. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't. I would not want to be uh, in in the Nuggets locker room trying to solve the series down one three at home in Game Five if I didn't have to. How much does this defy the NBA, where the league has made such a big emphasis on star players? Obviously, most of the successful championship teams have had star players, not just one, uh, but a bunch of them, or at least a collection of those players, and yet. Few people would put Jimmy Butler in that category for Miami, and he's the closest thing they've got to it. Yeah, it's. I think again, that's that's well said, and uh, you know, it's. I feel silly because I used to poke fun at hockey fans and the way that their postseason seems so chaotic. And you know, it's like you know, you really think you're determining your champion when just one goalie gets hot, stands on his head for two weeks two weeks and now all of a sudden your eight seed wins the, wins the Stanley Cup finals like you know that that's not the way you should determine a championship in a sport that has 82 games played out over six months you guys are silly and now here we are in the NBA and that's basically what's happening uh and I, I, yeah it's uh it does defy you know basically all the rules that existed for uh, you know how you come up with a champion. I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of different people in the you know who, who are kind of have an intelligent view on uh, you know how you come up with uh, uh, making a bet on you know championships once we get to the postseason. But you put together a rubric of this team has X, this team has Y, this team has Z. They perform to this level offensively during the regular season. They perform this level defensively. If they're not top 10 in both, then throw them out. If they don't have, you know, a top 20 player, then throw them out. If they don't have, you know, two top 50 players, throw them out. Well, you know, the Heat are breaking basically every rule. Uh, and, you know, considering that it's a best-of-seven format in the NBA and, you know, that in general there is so much weight to the star players and getting the calls, and especially in tight games where it devolves into just ISO basketball, this is unheard of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's – uh, if this is a new paradigm, I happily will adjust and, and move on with my life. But uh, you know, this is this is a going to if you know if if the Heat continue to if, even if they just make this a series, uh, this playoff run will go down in history as one of the, le- the least probable. And 
uh, you know, for those reasons, you're going to have to think twice about this, you know, kind of disregarding some of the uh, lower seed teams in the NBA for years to come. The other side of this, and we're chatting with Drew Dinsick, whale underscore capper is his Twitter handle, and he's with the Bet the Edge podcast on NBC Sports that uh, comes out daily wherever you listen to podcasts, among his other ventures as well. He's also on Deep Dive uh, with Andy and the Whale, and they've got a lot of overarching educational material that they're dropping now over the summer months on that particular podcast. Um, and I listened to one this morning when I could digest it a little bit better. Uh, but the, the overarching point is there may be something to be said about the data from a betting standpoint, but even from the casual fan standpoint, over investing in the regular season of the NBA, not just with load management, but the fact that what you get from there doesn't often seem to translate to the playoffs. Yeah, well, that uh, that I could go on and on for a long time <laughs> because I do strongly agree with you almost you don't throw it out necessarily because there is signal there for sure but the you know the the just the nature of the game between a regular season contest in the middle of february and what you're getting at a playoff level it's almost like a different sport <laughs> and you certainly like effort load management uh fatigue uh, familiarity of opponent all of these are first order influential factors when it comes to kind of understanding and navigating the ups and downs of a playoff series. And, you know, you're not getting any of that out of the right. It's impossible to tease all of that out of the regular season data, even if you happen that I'm not one of these people, but even if you happen to understand the X's and O's of a given team and their adjustments and uh, what they tend to do when the going gets tough and whether that'll work, even if you're very, very good at that, aspect of it it's still a little bit of guesswork as far as how a series is going to unfold because you do have highs and lows from players who tend to step up in the moment or shrink in the moment that the data would tell you this guy's you know bona fide on should be on the floor you know for you know the the crunch time minutes he's been a crunch time player in the regular season and then disappears in the playoffs disappears in the playoff series gets played off the floor because his particular matchup all of a sudden is getting exploited uh, to the tune of, uh, you know, just an impossibly good efficiency for the other offense. And, you know, that kind of stuff tends to w- mean so much more in a playoff series than you're ever going to be able to uh, really wrap your head around in a, in a regular season data set. And so it's, yeah, you almost have to have an entirely different approach. You can handicap by the numbers in the regular season and in the postseason it just turns into just trying to read the vibes and anyone who read the vibes on the heat has made a lot of money in this class yeah i mean i didn't see this one coming nearly the way that a lot of other people did uh but you did mention the unders i mean you mentioned betting unders as the series goes on i took under 215 earlier today on this series or on game three tomorrow night um are you at the point now where you just kind of expect that if nothing more than the fact that miami can if nothing even if they don't win they know how to at least slow the game down and that lends itself to unders yeah i mean I kind of in shock that <laughs> game two made it over. Um, I want to say that uh, game one opened in like the 219 range, got bet down to about 218, um, didn't even sniff uh, the total. Uh, and then in game two, uh, get you know, they opened it well lower, like 212. You know, got bet up a little bit as people were basically just trying to get closer to the, you know, regression close from game one. And, uh, you know, that, that looked dead. For most of game two because the pace was just 
absurdly slow. I think in total we had something like 91 possessions uh, in uh, you know in, in in game two of the playoffs to be that low already. Just tells you that you know we are trending down from there. Uh, for the rest of these playoff series. And so, again, kind of selfishly, like, uh, I'll root for you. <laughs> I'll root for an under in Game 3. Uh, but I would kind of like to see some high-efficiency offense here in the middle of this series so it kind of you know shakes people uh, off the scent a little bit before we get into Game 6 and Game 7 because historically, like, basically every single example you can possibly point to, um, the possessions tend to drop precipitously as you get into Game 6 and then even more in Game 7. You can have a delta that's in the neighborhood of 15 fewer possessions between the average of Games 1 and Game 4 and then what you get in Game 7. Uh, and that's just the nature of the familiarity between the teams. Uh, you know, that the, the offensive sets that were easy looks for you uh, in games one, two, three, four. All of a sudden, those are sniffed out. There's a plan in place to stop them. They aren't working anymore. And then all you know, your your ball handlers dribbling dribbling the ball, you know, the air out of the ball uh, until you're you know four seconds left, and you're getting a bad look. And then all of a sudden, your offensive efficiency plummets. So you know, in 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 by my numbers, I would expect that the neutral expectation for a game seven in terms of point total should be somewhere in the ballpark of 15 points fewer than what the average was for game one through game four which means if we do get to a game 6 or you know you know knock on wood a game 7 in this playoff series anything over 200 uh, is going to be a good bet to the under by my numbers. For all our listeners on W226 BG Timberlake, WVGMAM Lynchburg, WMNA, Gretna, Danville, Southside, Virginia, and the Virginia Talk Radio Network, uh, a lot of this will seem like it's like the NBA's version of the Virginia Cavaliers. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's, uh, that's a great way to put it. Like, yeah, they, they look great at times. The three balls going in, but the pace of, of play is, uh, is, is such that you just can't ever really expect, uh, uh, you know, scores to get into the 200s. So, yeah. And then the heat, the heater, the heater running that exact uh, playbook. Transitioning from the NBA to tennis with Drew Densick. Whale underscore capper on Twitter uh, is where you can find him. And of course, NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast. A couple days before you have to start making your official projections for the much anticipated matchup. It's now happening. Alcaraz versus Djokovic in a Grand Slam. Alcaraz has got one of these at the U.S. Open, but none of the big three, Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal, were in that event last year. Um, Alcaraz now the prohibited favorite, minus 200. So for our listeners out wow. there, if you laid 100 bucks, you get 50 back on Alcaraz. If you laid 100 bucks on Djokovic, you get 170 back. Should it be that steep of a number? Oh gosh, this is this is so tough. <laughs> Alcaraz is producing at a level that I haven't seen since young Rafa Nadal on clay, and they're very different players. So I hate drawing the comparison because it feels a little uh, a little too easy. Um, but you know his his offense in particular, his ability to hit the inside forehand at an, a completely unreturnable part of the court. Um, it's unique, and you know he's got an outstanding coach in Juan Carlos Ferrer in his box, who's helping him kind of navigate the younger portion of his career. But the disparity in experience is sort of what I hung my hat on for this entire slam, uh, and that is to say, best of five tennis, which is what they play at the Grand Slam level, is almost an entirely different beast uh, than your st- sort of standard best of three tennis during the rest of the calendar tour for the men's. Uh, and, you know, being able to defeat a player 
twice out of three is you know it's just it's it's a it's an entirely different task to say now go beat that same player three out of five. Uh, and it takes years and years to master the format for most players, but of course, you know, Alcaraz is not most players. Uh, and, you know, the disparity in experience between Alcaraz, who's played something like 32 of these matches in his life, and Novak Djokovic, who's up to about 430 of these, um, you know, that's, that's a gap that's notable in my mind. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, one slam on, you know, one slam in favor of Alcaraz to this point, uh, at 22 in favor of Djokovic. Like, this, the, the, the gap is, uh, is stark no matter what way you want to paint it. And there's been plenty of examples of up and coming players taking on the likes of a Nadal, a Federer, a Djokovic over the years. And just in general, the experience has been the difference in not being able to get across the finish line against those players. So basically, I look at this as, skill, talent in a vacuum, form in a vacuum, those prices make sense to me. Alcaraz should be a meaningful favorite over Djokovic. He has a head-to-head scalp against him in Madrid from last year on clay. Uh, and, you know, he was absolutely outstanding in that match. Every single time he's gone up against one of these legends in, in a just a really high-stakes match on tour, he's produced his best tennis. He's not a guy that really wilts under the pressure like a lot of the other anointed next generation were doing throughout the you know the years that the big three dominated and so you know he's a, he's a different case but uh i will stand on the ground of experience being at least a bit of a neutralizing factor here uh to where this should be closer to a 50 50 match uh and <laughs> if alcaraz walks out on court and plays the way he did today against Sissipas, then I'm going to have to change my opinion very quickly because that was virtually unbeatable tennis. Um, and, you know, he's gotten better through every stage of the tournament to this point. Um, it's literally just going to have to be a matter of not exactly figuring out Djokovic's game until it's too late uh, and or Djokovic kind of getting points back that Alcaraz doesn't think should come back because Djokovic is the best returner that tennis has ever seen, and that's really the you know the neutralizing X and O factor in his game. So uh, I have a lot of uh, Djokovic in pocket to win the title. Uh, it was it's at a worse price this moment than it was this morning, which is just to tell you how you know wobbly Djokovic looked today and how absolutely untouchable Alcaraz was, um, but. I'm, I'll basically pay to see Alcaraz beat me at these prices. It's just, it's too, it's too early. It's too much credit for him to to give him this kind of respect against uh, a player who, you know, the 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 last two French Opens were decided on his racket against Rafa Nadal in their head to head. He beat him once. He lost to him once. And you know, until we, I see Alcaraz do it on that court in those conditions, then uh, you know, I, I think they should be closer to a fifty fifty. But um, boy, am I going to be in the minority on Thursday. Well, you are at least open about that. I'll throw my name into the hat as well. I had Djokovic at uh, 250 to 1, or plus 250, 2.5 to 1, to win the French Open. And I got him right in uh, the Australian Open, right as he was beating Diminor at about 35 to 1 to win the calendar slam this year. And my one thought on both of those was if this moment came, do you hedge? And if so, how do you hedge? Do you take Alcaraz on the money line? Do you take him to win this? Because this is basically the de facto. Do I throw in like 
the Formula One race because you can just put Verstappen in there and like it's just a gimme. That series is so predictable and boring. Or do you take Alcaraz in the first set because he's minus 170 for that and you would presume he's got to start out fast whereas Djokovic, I mean, he's fallen down in these things before and, uh, you know, while you know he's fallen down to Medvedev and never came back, he also has come back and grinded his way through. Yeah, surely. And I, the loss to Medvedev stands out because you know, he he was coming off of an extremely physical five set match to Zverev, and it's conditions that don't favor him. He's play he plays his worst in New York, um, and so I'm willing to kind of completely give him a pass on that one. Uh, if he no shows against Alcaraz, that's it's going to be a shocker. It's going to be shocking, and uh, I agree with you that Medvedev does like to kind of I don't want to say play with his food per se because a lot of these players, you know, he's just he's unraveling their games and getting in their heads over the course of the match, like you saw with him and and uh, Hatchnot today, but um, he does then, he does drop a lot of first sets. He does win a lot of matches 3-1, especially at the business end of these tournaments. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, realistically, Alcaraz getting a first set is a fair expectation. Alcaraz definitely does not uh, mess around early. He is kind of comes out of the box very, very aggressively. And if his shot, you know, if he's got a good read on distance, then first set for Alcaraz is an interesting way to hedge. I Definitely kind of would look at, you know, if you're going to find a way to kind of multi, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's beaten Iga <laughs> today, you know, this week either. Uh, and she's still kind of in that, uh, you know, bettable range to pair with Alcaraz. And um, so it's, the, you know, there's there's ways to kind of go about that, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's, I'm very excited for this match. And I don't have a good way to hedge just because what Alcaraz put on tape today was so phenomenal. Um, and, you know, part of my conviction and why I thought Djokovic was going to win this and threaten the calendar slam was, uh, you know, I figured his match against Sissipas was going to be more physical, it was going to be more draining and demanding, and it just wasn't anything close to that because his level was just superlative. Yeah, I mean, he just looked phenomenal out there. It's been a joy to watch, and maybe you are looking at Alcaraz and Ego rolling uh, through the French Open for quite a while. We've been gracious enough for Drew Dinsick to roll through the fast lane with us today. Drew, thank you for your time going a little bit longer than maybe expected, and uh, who knows, we'll see what happens on Thursday when these uh, <laughs> Titans clash. You know, I was on an island with Djokovic against Nadal two years ago. No one thought Nadal could ever be defeated on clay, and Djokovic did it. So uh, maybe I'm buying in too much to uh, to history and looking for a pattern here when in, in reality Alcaraz is the right side the whole way. But uh, I'll believe it until he's out of the tournament that he should be the favorite. So. Let's go, Djokovic. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if that comes to fruition or not. And we'll, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it is selfishly, but I'm not lying. I've, I Between Anj Jabor at Wimbledon last year, Medvedev at the Australian oh, last year, oh, and oh. I had Rabakina 20-1 to 1 before the French, and I couldn't even hedge because I tried on Cerebra's Tormo, and it was a walkover, so I didn't get my money oh. back. At this point, I'm like, you know what? Screw it. We're finding a way around this no matter what. Ah, uh, tennis futures are so rough. That on Jabor Wimbledon one was that will that will be a scar for life because never you know never in a million years are you to get that situation or that price again. Uh, and boy, oh boy, was she close! Oh my gosh, painful memories that you remind uh. me of, Drew. It's uh, you know, it's like a you know morning club here. Misery loves company in the fast lane, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. We'll enjoy the rest of the tennis, and best of luck to you in the audience. You as well. Thank you much, Drew. Drew Densick with us here in the fast lane. Long today, but hopefully fun for you. We will turn it over to the Zach Gelb show now and be back tomorrow afternoon, 5 to 6.